Welcome back to Not Alone, a podcast about faith and well-being. We are so glad you're listening. When was the last time you allowed yourself to play? And when I say play, I mean doing something just for the simple joy of having fun. Play is not often thought of something that's essential for adults, but in this episode, we're going to challenge that preconceived notion. We're going to share our own experiences about what play has meant to us, and we're even going to talk about some research from a Hungarian psychologist whose name is a little difficult to pronounce. If that sounds good to you, here are Michael McCord, Lindsay Geist, and Evan DeYoung. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another wonderful episode of the Not Alone Podcast, the podcast all about faith and well-being. I'm Evan DeYoung, and I'm here with Lindsay Geist and Michael McCord. Say hey to the people. Hey, people. Great to be with all of you. Hope you're doing well. (laughs) That was so formal. What happened? He does that. He, he does that about half the time. It's very, very formal. Greetings. Someone everyone. here needs to have some formality. We That's just can't can be say. playful guys, all the time. Yeah. No. I like I to mean, have fun. You drink out of a cup the size of your head. Evan <laughs> wears a snuggie every time we meet. I don't. Some, um, oh, no, it's a comfy. Sorry. Comfy. Thank you I'm so snuggie. much. Okay. And yeah. my cup of tea is not oh, fully tea. the size is not fully the size of my head i mean it is part of a visual uh it's an illusion okay it's 97 percent uh, the size of her it's head a trick of perspective oh my goodness y'all listening you may be the people that need caffeine like me we it it requires this much sometimes especially to uh lovingly spend time with these two so drink, let's go tea, it's like a dribble of caffeine <laughs> oh my goodness Okay, let's do this, y'all. All right. So today we are talking about play. That's right, play. And so you may ask yourself, what does play have to do with faith and well-being? We would argue everything. So Michael Lindsay, what comes to mind when I say play? If I said, hey, what are you guys doing Saturday? You guys want to play? <laughs> what would you? What would that elicit in you? I wouldn't laugh because I have used that phrase with friends and friends make fun of me. And I'm like, are you free to play this weekend? I think that we should use the phrase. Yeah, I think we should use the, we should use the phrase more often. Well, so I, I'm a father of two children who love to play. And so when I hear play, I immediately know that's going to require matchbox cars or magnet tiles. Or some combination of those two. The word and so play. I get giddy because honestly, <laughs> the reason you become a parent is so you can play with all your toys without anybody, you know, Kids condemning you for it. Way mm-hmm. cooler these days. I don't. The know word play sounds like so carefree to me that it feels uh, much less like work and much less structured mm. than a lot of things. So I could also just use ride bikes interchangeably. That's what we always did. Like you would come over oh. to your friend's house and be like, oh, can mm-hmm. so let's come out and ride bikes? Because there's a couple things that that communicates. One, dope. That's cool. Riding bikes is fun. But two, that tells the parents, we're going to be outside. Much easier for a parent to say, oh, yeah, yeah, ship them outside. Go ride bikes. <laughs> then, hey, can I come in and play? You learn these little tricks as a child. Yeah, you know, riding bikes, just that's like the epitome of my childhood. 
so many things were about riding bikes and making up like entire scenarios about riding bikes. Do you remember, did you put uh, like aluminum cans on your wheels to make them sound like motorcycles? No, but that sounds awesome. Oh yeah, man. We'd have like, you could put them on the front and the back and it'd be like double motorcycle. We did playing cards in the spokes. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. a good one. I think my, my favorite moment of bike riding was when I was, I have no idea how old I was. I guess I was probably seven years old. And in the boys, I was a boy scout in the back, back of the magazine, they sold stuff. You know, you could buy stuff. And one of them was like this police siren that goes on your bicycle. Okay. And I wanted that so badly. And that one, one Christmas, one Christmas, I got it. And it was the best. I would spend my entire summer pulling my friends over. It was great. You, you wait, you, you got a siren. So you just wanted to be a bike cop. I was a bike cop, man. <laughs> <laughs> So your did other play... people did other people count that as play or only you? <laughs> not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. It's just how much of a dork out. I was also a safety patrol officer at my school, so it is, you know, just for the record. I have a long <laughs> history in law enforcement. Everybody else play, but Michael's gonna enforce the play rules. <laughs> I feel like what we're gonna learn today is that uh the three of us defined play very differently and that uh some of us were cooler and some of us were dorkier. Well, what about you, Lindsay? What was your, what were your like go-to I mean, play? I'm, I'm not saying I was cool either. So no, let's no. just say. I, you've, opened the, you've opened the door. <laughs> Tell me what is defined cool play for you? What was your favorite play as a kid? Fiddler on the Roof. back to. <laughs> Barbie dolls. <laughs> Glad that you answered that question, uh, literally using the word play differently. Um, I see the, the interplay here. Okay, it's for anybody that- joke. It's a Are we going to let- We're not going to let her finish. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Playing with um, your brothers, that's your favorite? Uh, no, I, I love y'all and sometimes uh, don't love y'all. Um, so when I was young, I remember, uh, using chalk and drawing like all sorts of streets. And then did, did y'all ever have, uh, like the little battery operated car that you could climb in like the Jeep or the convertible? Oh, power. My neighbors had one, but my parents, it was too dangerous, too dangerous. Um, So I had a pink Barbie car convertible. I think oh, it was yeah. like Barbie. Maybe not. Maybe it was just did. pink. Of course she um, did. We knew this. And uh, I would like draw all the streets and then, you know, drive around in it in the driveway. And that was so See, cool. See, I could have come and pulled you over because I bet you were breaking the law. <laughs> <laughs> you guys would have been perfect. <laughs> Lindsay strength traffic me, flow patterns to drive her power wheels through. <laughs> and Michael's going to enforce the rules. <laughs> oh goodness how about you evan play yeah Anything. favorite thing favorite thing is favorite memory of play as a child too many i i mean i i just there's just too many a lot of the my favorite memories and the ones that stick out in play to me are one ones that 
were having so much fun and then came crashing down to a halt. So, for example, did you guys have water balloon fights or oh, yeah. water gun fights? Did you, did you have the water balloon slingshot? Yes. Those were awesome to see de- how far down the road you could get it. And devastating. We would set up targets. Children always got hurt with those. <laughs> we were a little safer, but... Uh, oh, no, you know somebody's drew... going to let go of their handle. It's going to slip. Somebody's going to try and do the thing where they put it on their feet and then try and lean it back by themselves. I don't think I was the same risk taker that you were. I don't think we thought we were taking risks. I just think we were stupid. We were just being creative. Yeah. True. Oh, yeah. Fine line between creativity and stupidity, to be honest. <laughs> well, we Which having... is the subtitle line of our company that we run. <laughs> <laughs> Fine line between creativity and stupidity. Stupidity. That's, that's us. <laughs> I remember having so much fun with water gun fights and water balloons and hoses and everything that I was so excited to come back in my house and I'm sprinting back in my house. There's no cars in the garage. And I just go from like lawn to wet textured concrete, not a problem to the very slick epoxy floor of your concrete, you know? Mm -hmm. And when you have wet kid feet and you're going, a hundred kid miles an hour and you run into that concrete and you try and stop to go into the house that's friction is not playing along there so i just remember every time we'd have a water gun fight i was not smart enough and i'd be way too excited that i would just bust it into the driveway and then into the garage and inevitably just beef it every other time we had a water fight and it took me years to learn when you get to the epoxy floor in the garage you have to do that little like mini high step thing where you're like that's right yeah you have to like increase the opportunity to be touching the ground yeah no sliding no i will say us telling stories of our childhood and play i know podcast is not a visual format but it is so fun looking at y'all's faces right now, Evan and Michael, because all of us are smiling. These huge smiles, thinking back on playing when we were young. And it just makes me wonder, like, what about that was so life-giving to us that I don't think that I talk about play like that anymore as an adult? It's certainly less formalized. I, I, I think... For me, or actually, maybe it's more formalized, right? Like play, play is more organized as and formalized as we're going to go play. We're going to go do indoor skydiving, and what what, which is great because you got to put it on the calendar. It's a lot of fun. We did it with our team once. It was so much fun. We had a great time together. But it was nothing about it was impromptu. It's scheduled and structured. Hmm. Yeah. That there was something just a total freedom in playing when we were young. I think that's what I love about, I mean, I've been in, Evan and I have both been in campus ministry, ministry college students for a really long time. And um, college students, you get like this second burst of fun. Like, I feel like, you know, adolescence, you, you saw about play. And then, and then high school, there's this period of time where you just, think you have to be old and you think you have to be an adult and you try to, you try to adult and you of course fail at it pretty miserably unless you're Lindsay. Um, 
and in which case she's full-on adult when she's 14 but in, in any case <gasps> oh, uh, like then in college years for whatever reason you you get away you get to kind of revert and you go back to a lot of play I mean there's a lot of work and there's, but there's also a lot of play and I think being a college a person who works with college students you get to sort of join into that play and I've always thought it's the thing that really makes campus ministry special is that the intermix between someone's spiritual journey and their personal journey and how play is inserted throughout that. Like it's not, it's not like a separate event that happens, but, but spiritual growth and personal growth and having fun together is all commingled. But in the church and in our normal adult lives, that's not the case. It's, you go to church, you have your spiritual life time, then you have your work lifetime and you have your family lifetime. And every six months you set aside a time to have a playtime that's organized with some friends, you know, everything is so segmented and organized and formal that it's the impromptu, the, the, the joy of being, having a sense of freedom just doesn't really exist as much for adults. Mm -hmm. Evan's like, actually, it's not true for me. <laughs> well, play helps things <laughs> stick. And I think play is an inevitable part of development. Everybody has, play will happen. So if I, I believe that if you put children in a room alone and on an island and it was Lord of the Flies, they would develop play. It's something that's naturally going to happen. I don't think that it's always... Uh, what is taught about play that makes us do it. I think kids will naturally do it. There's a researcher, Mildred Parton. She identified six kind of stages of play that she observed children develop in. And they start with unoccupied play. So uh, they just kind of do their own thing. Um, it's just them experimenting. I think that's always an interesting thing when you have a young child who's just sitting there and you see them get interested in something and you're like, you, your little brain is trying to figure some stuff out here. And they kind mm -hmm. of get interested in it. And maybe it's like something they're picking at or playing with or typically slobbering on. But you can see that something different is happening there. Michael is, okay, I want to be very clear here. Michael just reached towards his camera and then all of a sudden we see him peeling at it and his fingers are grubbing up the lens. And then I think you removed the protective film off of your webcam. Did you get a new one? Or how long has that been on there, Michael? It's been on there for about a year and a half. <laughs> oh, goodness. Does it look better? Uh, yeah. Am I better now? Yeah, you look so, better. So, good. for example, unoccupied play. You... Get curious about things in your environment and you want to make changes and influence on them, such as the film on your camera lens. That, that, that I think that's, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I'm sorry. So then there's solitary play. Uh, so they just entertain themselves without any other involvement there's onlooker play which is the next stage where they'll watch other people play so this is something that children kind of progress through there's parallel play two people play next to each other but they're not necessarily playing 
like engaging with each other, which mm -hmm. is always interesting. Uh, I think parallel play is a lot of an extension of what we do, I think, in college a lot of the time, where it's like, hey, do you want to get together and study? You're not in the same class. You're just going to both do structured, you're going to study your thing, I'm going to work on my thing, but we're not going to be alone. Did you guys ever do that with your friends in college? Yeah. Right? Yeah, you should steak and shake. Parallel play. I also think lots of when you see little kids that uh, are each playing with blocks, but playing almost their backs to each other or just not mm -hmm. paying attention to each other, uh, that there's this certain age where the parents put the kids together because they're like, maybe we can encourage interaction. Um, but the kids developmentally might not be there yet. They might be in this place where they are in their own little world still doing their own thing. So true, which is why the next stage, associative play, is very interesting because they are more focused on uh, they're more focused on the other participants of play, not necessarily the mm -hmm. activity. I I find all these stages and in information really interesting because I I mean I've loosely thought of play over the years, but I've not really thought about the uh, psychology or the developmental uh, components of play. And Evan, you've spent a lot of time in your life studying play. Yes. Would you care to expound on your interest <laughs> in play? Um, because I think that you bring a really unique experience and information to the table of your understanding of play. So we've moved now into the sixth stage of play, which is cooperative oh, sorry. play. No, you're good. I did not mean to interrupt. Uh, because this is cooperative efforts between players and they set group goals. So you have teed me up <laughs> to be able to discuss uh, actual play. I, I so I think that play is ever present in society, and I think that it's an essential part of the human experience. And I also, as somebody who learns typically a little bit better through play and activity, uh, I think it has made me curious about what its function is in society and how we can use it to give texture and energy and creativity to life because i think that play is oftentimes put in contrast with work like they're two different mm -hmm. things uh, you're either playing or you're working and that if you're working you can't really be playing and if you're playing you can't you're not really going to get as much done as if you were just working but i don't think my experience nor the research shows that to be true i think Michael, you talked about this in the past. Uh, the four-day work week is a great example of how we measure productivity versus actually what we're capable of producing as humans. Are you still on board with a four-day work week here, Michael? I'm moving more towards a two-day work week. We just work <laughs> on the weekends. And uh, so we're moving towards. But yeah, I think that's a fascinating way to, to think about. There are a couple of things that I was thinking about in, in, in this sort of dualism between work and play kind of binary thinking, of course, that fits really well with the way our society is organized around good and bad, evil and um, 
and heroes and, and things like that uh is that that somehow play is bad we 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 learn that um as we become adults that it stopped you know our parents may say you need to quit playing and do your work um and that because our mantra for adulthood is quit playing and do your work mm-hmm. and what we find is that that human productivity actually increases when humans have more time to play and that you could you can do achieve the same so for example this this research i don't, I don't know if we talked in this last episode this research that that's just coming out in, in europe is that that the shifting to a four-day work week uh, and not increasing the hours of work but actually decreasing overall hours uh they increase productivity per per working person and works less and we're home more and overall it was a net positive because because the the companies increased productivity overall and the the staff found more enjoyment in their work life balance and so you could hold on to your employees longer because that's one of the big you know big issues that companies face is turnover and the cost of turnover because there's the recruitment and sustaining of positions is is pretty enormous on on especially on larger corporations and so if you can increase productivity increase uh, employee buy-in in your organization and so there's less turnover that's a that's a massive uh economic win for a business and for for people for humans and for the way we'd be able to we're able to be part of our community uh, the other thing I was thinking about that's right along that side when so we Evan and I are part of an organization that we're all remote employees um there's about 14 of us and when I was researching how do you lead a group of people who are remotely you know located you know you don't have a staff you don't have an office you don't see each other and one of the big detriments uh to consistently across research uh to remote employeeship is that the lack of what they call water cooler talk or that sort of banter mm-hmm. the play that naturally happens inside of a work environment when you just happen to be in the same physical space together and what what happens in remote life is you feel like when you're on you have to be on and so generally staff meetings and uh, one-on-one meetings and and those kinds of things become very task focused and so you end up losing a lot of the play and the banter which means you lose relationship and trust and so a lot of proponents uh for people who work in the in the remote work environment is to to always leave space to actually plan i've worked with some some large company leaders around this uh, particular issue is to create space in your agenda for play uh, on your so if you have a staff meeting a virtual staff meeting and you have 20 people coming on and is t- to let you know 20 minutes of your schedule be just that type where people join on and they their cats are crawling across their shoulders and their kid running across half naked and that stuff happens and you guys get to laugh about it you get to tell stories like actually make that part of the meeting, not something that gets in the way of the meeting. And you can increase productivity and relationship and trust inside of your organization. So those are two things I was thinking about that 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 crossover between the power of play in an organization and, and human productivity. I find it interesting that play is something that research has shown can be really helpful in bonding and connection, creativity, and even productivity. Yet there there seems to be this underlying current that we um, we experience some like guilt or shame internally 
uh, when we're playing instead of working. Mm-hmm. I wonder why, like that, that it, we know it is helpful and yet we still feel badly about doing it. Uh, I mean, we are, because we're, I think two, two major influences in our society. One is, is capitalism. And so you're only as good as the amount of money that you can earn mm-hmm. and, and earning money is around productivity. And so we get into this belief that we just got to do more and more and more and more uh, so we can have more, so we can have more value in our society. The other is our, our Christian heritage, uh, particularly Protestants, Protestantism, and what we often call the work ethic of Protestants. And that is that somehow, even though we have this like dueling belief system between you are, you are saved by grace alone, uh, but, but you also have all these, you also need a life that, res, that reflects that grace. And so there's this banter back and forth between works righteousness. That is to say that the work that I do is what earns God's love for me, uh, as opposed to God's love for me uh, draws me into doing more things. <laughs> and, and I got to make sure that I sacrifice and do enough to, to reflect the love that I've received from our creator. And so in the end, it creates, you got this dual system of capitalism and Protestantism that says both of them saying you are, your worth is based on what you produce and and what you do, how much you're willing to sacrifice for the greater good, whether it's for the greater good of the company or the greater good of humanity. And both of those are pretty heavy burdens to carry. And so play looks like it takes away from those two, those two priorities. Okay, so actually there is this Hungarian-American researcher, and his name is so complicated to pronounce, I'm going to allow Wikipedia to do it for me. Here we go. Mihai Cheeks and Mihai. There you go. That's his name. Hope you caught it. I'll learn how to pronounce it better later, but in order to do it justice. Let's call him Mihai. I think that's his first name. I think that's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So here's where I was going to go with this. Also, his middle name's Robert. Uh, So... (laughs) Uh, I think it has an accent on it. Okay, so what's his research? That's the part I care about. I'm sure he, I, I value him. Anyway, so his story is with that us? he was in World War II and that he was a prisoner. And so he started to take notice of joy and things that captivated people's attention and when they would get lost in an activity. Uh, And he often found that this was when they were doing something like arts or music or sports. And so he started to develop this theory called flow. Uh, And so flow is when you get completely lost in a task. So he has these eight characteristics of flow. But the general idea is that there is moments that can happen in the human experience where we get so engaged with a task or activity that we lose track of time that we get this reward from doing it right that it's kind of effortless and easy and we're kind of just carefree and enjoying it you see somebody get lost in a performance potentially um we kind of like lose this kind of you get lost in the moment i mean you've you've had these times mm-hmm. when that's happened and then that you have some control over the task so it's not just exhilarating daredevil stuff you're not just spiking your adrenaline and getting lost in the overwhelming uh, sensory input that there's just this 
task that you find yourself lost in. So you can, he calls this a flow state. So you can find yourself in a flow state with anything if you get into it enough. I wonder how, I mean, I think about hobbies now as an adult. I mean, in some ways that's our, in often our individualized form of play these days. Um, I mean, I think about the last time I was reading a book and got lost in a book and the hours just flew by. Um, Or um, I have gone out on a run or a walk in nature and totally lost track of time. Or going to play tennis with friends Mm -hmm. and been lost in the moment. Um, Music can often do it for me that I am totally enthralled and not thinking about uh, time or space or anything else. And maybe that, maybe that's what I miss most about play as a child is the flow state, how easy it was to get into flow state and uh, lose all the boundaries on responsibilities, time and space. Oh, yeah. That was, I mean, it was too easy for me. I remember when I was like three or four, one of my earliest memories, I was swinging in my backyard at my neighbor's house and just having the most fun in the world. But I had to go to the bathroom so bad, but I didn't want to stop swinging. So I just pooped my pants because it... <laughs> and I got in so much trouble. But I distinctly remember as a child thinking, this is so much fun. I do not want to go like this to end. And then I was like, oh, I gotta go. I'll just go. Do you think that's what marathoners feel? Like they're running the marathon, you know? You know this whole thing about runners going in the bathroom? Some of the worst I've ever felt as a human being has been during distance (laughs) running. (laughs) (laughs) They just, they're in the flow and they're just like, ah, I can't stop. This is too much fun running. I can't imagine a state like that. But no, I think that's, I think that's a really, both of you make some, some good observations about that that sort of disconnect from reality that you're just in this sort of this state of euphoria really you know that you're everything is right and and there's and everything's easy and and i'm not worried about anything and that is a really i think worry i wonder how much worry plays into our inability to have fun as adults uh, because as kids we have less things although i think kids now probably have more to worry about than we did when we were growing up. We, we didn't have the same acts. We didn't have the same access to information in the, in the world mm-hmm. and bad things. Those bad things existed. We just didn't hear about them like they do now. And, um, you know, do, do, do the worries keep us from being able to be free? I, I mean, I think they do. Uh, you can actually watch, he has a Ted talk on this from the early 2000s so you could go back and watch his his ted talk uh i'll we can link in the notes yeah yeah yeah. you could you could check it out um and he uses figure skating as an example of someone who gets kind of lost in that flow state where things feel good Uh, and i think that it's essential though for well-being and i think it's really important for faith as something that's interconnected with well-being to get our minds in this kind of flow state because I think it's really important for us to be able to just have a break 
from this constant responsibility and worry of what's next. And we have to put ourselves in a position to give ourselves the space to recreate ourselves. I mean, that's the core of recreation is recreation of self by giving enough space to move those pieces around. And I think we hold on to things really, really tightly too much so uh, in that when we get a different angle, when we get a different perspective, when we're able to just relax and get our minds and our bodies and our creativity moving in another direction, we often, and I find that I often find solutions to some of the challenges I feel stuck in just by removing ourselves. Not, not that I remove myself just to solve problems that I can't solve any other way, but that there is that interconnected relationship between how we're able to let our minds go and be able to truly experience part of what it is to be human and not just some kind of productivity, responsibility, achieving goal-oriented machine, but to be able to live as a creature that is created and just enjoy ourselves and enjoy people that we are around and care about. I think about that, the connection of spirituality and a bit of a flow state that it is easier to connect with God when I am uh, kind of present and free in the moment um that there have been moments of worship there have been moments when uh i have been on a retreat or something where there is both scheduled time uh but scheduled free time that grants me permission to get in a flow state or rest um that those are some of my most meaningful moments of connection with God of when I haven't been uh, trying to think about everything else. It, it makes me wonder, I mean, besides just our own spiritual experiences, it makes me wonder uh, like what scripture really has to say about play. Does it have anything to say about play? I think that's an interesting question that I don't think has a direct answer. Um, like we, you know, sometimes I think we, we think that the scriptures are some uh, database that we go to, to find the answer to things. And sometimes it provides direction, but sometimes direction is more nuanced in its approach. And I think in the terms of play, that certainly is, uh, I think, I think a more nuanced you know, multi-layered kind of experience in scripture. I think sort of backing up a little bit, at least from my perspective, thinking about religion and, and how, how we teach it. Uh, we were having this conversation before the show, before we started recording about how it, it, it's strange that in many ways, we take really hard topics, um, really stuff that's probably, some would argue, inappropriate for children. <laughs> Things, things like uh, Noah and the Ark and the flood of, you know, flood of the whole world and the death of most every human. And we turn them into children's play songs that are really catchy and kind of cheeky and, and fun. And it, it, so we were remarking about how we take these really heavy, hard topics and turn them into this really lighthearted kind of fun children's songs for our kids to learn. But then when we become adults, it's 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 like everything in the Bible and everything in our spiritual journey has to be serious and weighty and heavy. And I don't know mm -hmm. that I pick that up as much in in at least 
thinking about Jesus, the story of Jesus, at least, um, that, that, that things are that heavy, uh, and that we should think of everything being that, that heavy. Um, and so, for example, you know, the first miracle that Jesus is recorded, uh, participating in is the changing of water into wine at the, the wedding of Cana. And now that's not directly fun, right? I mean, that's not, it's not saying, oh, we are having a fun time, but, but it says a lot, like the first, the first thing Jesus is recorded of doing is, is at a party. And not only is it at a party, but it's changing water into wine, into alcohol and, and not just any alcohol, but apparently really good alcohol. And so that sets the tone, in my opinion, I think that starts to set the tone that, that, that Jesus is, loves being with people and being with people. What's really fun about being with people is having fun with them uh, and, and really enjoying each other's company. And he creates this environment inside of this party to create, you know, the opportunity for people to have fun together. And so this says a lot to me about maybe how Jesus sees his role in being with us. Uh, well, fantasy play is one of the categories of play as defined by these researchers. And that's where you put yourself in stories and situations to begin to understand how the world works, how you work, how you think about different things. And I think the nature of even just teaching in parables and stories rather than direct lessons is an element of play and learning where rather than let me just tell you rather than telling you what to do let me give you an example let me create a fictional world that you can see yourself in in the perspective of different characters and then you can draw more lessons than just a direct answer about whatever your specific question was and i think you see some other elements of play in the way that even just specifically jesus conducts himself i think when the woman's caught in adultery he gets down and he just starts drawing in the dirt in front of her, right? There's all these little details of texture and, and excitement where he does these things that aren't necessarily conventional at first. Uh, and so it breaks off what somebody's expectation is. It diffuses tension and they're present everywhere. And so Jesus, I mean, do we know that Jesus played? We know that the disciples and Jesus played together, that they spent time going into people's homes and having meals together. That's social play. So it's, it's present and baked everywhere in the texture of the character of Jesus. And I think it's there in scripture as well. I think even one of my favorites is, is where Peter walks on water. Like what a, what a fascinating, fun scene. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, kind of crazy to think about Now We would, we would say that's, you know, we'd, we'd probably take that and make it very serious. And there's some deep theological meaning about this. And we'll unpack it into a three parts sermon series uh, over the course of 30 minute teaching and a worship service so that it's long and really heavy and meaty because that's the way we want to frame our religious experiences but jesus just he just he comes walking out of the water to see to wake up his disciples are in the boat and then peter wants to do it and he's like come on out you can do it and he does it and then he he starts to freak out and he starts to sink and and he, he catches him puts him back in the boat and they they head on their journey i mean that's just that's a fun interesting fascinating little story of interaction between jesus and the disciples so i think you're absolutely right i mean 
what we know about when people are together and they like each other is they're going to have fun together and they're going to enjoy each other's company. Uh, and there's, so I think there's, you have to look at fun. You look for the fun in different ways. Another good one to me is the feeding of the 5,000 and in, in the one telling that, that where this, this little kid offers up fish and bread and they're all like, no kid, get out of here. That's not enough to feed all this. And then Jesus decides, you know what, we're going to make the kid, the hero of the story. And he gave up his, his little bit of food. And this little kid is going to feed all these people because of his faith and his willingness to give up what he has. I mean, that's that when you, when you step back and say, that's a pretty crazy story and that's pretty fun. Like he, you know, let the children come to me. Don't not hinder them. Let's, let's play together. Um, that those fun is there. It's it's vivid if you're looking for it. But I think what's what's really sad about our religious tradition, at least for me right now, is that that it feels very heavy, and that everything about um, you know, and right now in our church and the Methodist denomination, it's very heavy about what's 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 true, what's real, what's what's uh, orthodox, what's uh, you know what what's honestly the the real truth in the bible what it says and you know those kinds of searching that hunting creates a lot of pressure and weight to a to an experience i wonder if in scripture what we're naming is maybe not what we directly would have named as play like back to uh sidewalk chalk and water balloons and riding it wasn't indoor skydiving although yeah, walking in water is kind of like their yeah. version of indoor skydiving. I mean, it's, maybe, you know, yeah. But for adults, I think playful interaction is like our form of access to play. That is kind of the socially acceptable inroads to play, um, and so perhaps as adults, if we look first for playful interactions that would lead us to play. It is a really fun way to get to know people. There's a quote that's incorrectly ascribed to Plato. <laughs> but uh, it, it is, is that a, Plato the, the author or Plato the, the, the dough? Yeah, so the, it would, this would be the philosopher. <laughs> T, Plato. <laughs> Plato. Uh, and it... it it's, he didn't say it, almost certainly, but it's an interesting quote. It says, you can discover more about a person in an hour of play than in a year of conversation. Hmm. And, and I think there is something about play that allows us to get to know a different side of people. That mutual goal setting, the fact that you, you, know, <clears throat> you, you have to communicate a lot of the time, sometimes non-verbally. You have to agree on these imaginary rules and norms for your like play session and then you'll notice that people will correct people when they get out of line like somebody i think uh people on a beach especially guys i'll, I'll gender it uh if you see a bunch of guys and they just start digging a big hole on the beach in the morning odds are a bunch of other guys will just jump in the hole and start digging. Sure, because we're just a bunch can, of dogs. In the end, we're right. just trying to and oh, ask if they do. can play. They will, and there'll be rules like, okay, we don't pile the sand over here. We do this. We don't dig like they. They will establish a like structure. It'll get, it'll and get norms. increasingly organized as yes. it gets more complex Correct. and more people are involved. Yeah, and that's just dudes being dudes. 
But at its core. And then our wives are looking at us like, why are you doing that? Like, why? Because it's cool. We choose to dig a hole because it is there. <laughs> because we can. <laughs> Actually, I think he gave that speech. He gave a speech at Rice University, I think. And he did that. I think we're coming up on like the anniversary of that. Hold on. I'm going to look it up while you guys talk about something else. Uh, actually, it was yesterday, the anniversary of the announcement of going to to the moon. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, it, that was it yesterday. Was, it was I think it was yesterday. yesterday. 60th anniversary. Yeah, we chose to go to the moon. See, now that's an example of like national play, right? Oh, it, sure. it's, it's it's really serious in a lot of ways, right? I mean, exploration is serious finding new things, but it's also like a national form of play. And it, it, a lot of it was to redirect our energy from the wars and from the strife of the world that, that was being experienced at that time. And, and it's sort of a nationalized form of play. Is there an official definition of play? Like, no, what here. would the dictionary say? Because I think what's so complicated about play, maybe for us, is that it is such a fluid concept that it is hard for us to define at times what it is. Verb form, uh, engage in activity for enjoyment and recreation rather than a serious or practical purpose. Hmm. And then it says in my, it says, see Evan Dion. Oh. <laughs> it what it says. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm just saying it's, it's what it says. Amuse oneself by engaging in imaginative pretense. So I think that in my adult world, probably the most play I have is, is my imagination. I really embrace my, I do a lot of daydreaming. I do a lot of like, like the way I fall asleep at night is to imagine things in my mind. Like some of it's like ridiculous, but then some of it's like, what would it be like if I completely redid my house? What would it look like if I built a pool? And what if it? What if if I was a, a, a world leader? What would I do to try to address you know the crisis of of energy in the world? Like, like these All are your the things that I just... involves you getting more responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> but in some ways, using your imagination in uh, that feels like a safe form of play because it feels structured and serious enough but lets you use your creativity well i think that there's some truth here that adults need to play and we don't always play well we structure it too much or we've lost the art of play i think this is well illustrated by some playgrounds that are cropping up called like adventure playgrounds there they have some in new york and california and it's just construction materials and like saws and hammers and tarps and wood and screws and nails and they put them in this thing and the parents are not allowed to go in with the kids so they the children are supervised to use the materials so for example it's not just 73rd graders with hammers and saws running around by themselves but they do not allow parents to go in and hmm. supervise directly the play they can sit back and watch but they create a disconnect there. And there had to be a reason that they chose to do it that way. Well, it makes me start thinking about how 
adults interfere with children's play. Like let's like, let's think about children's sports these days that how often are you hearing parents, uh, kids are playing just fine, having a great time and parents are screaming bloody murder from the sidelines. Um, and they are yelling about why isn't this happening? Play harder, get over here. What are you doing? Um, and they're, they're no longer, uh, giving permission for kids to just play. There has to be like a purpose or successful thing. Michael, you, you, as a child, as a child, as a parent with children in youth sports, what is the state you, you have the perfect perspective. What is the state of youth sports currently? Highly organized, increasingly competitive. I would also say consequential. Those are the, those are the three like facets I would talk about uh, child play and organized sports is that, you know, when, when I played, we'd, we'd practice once a week, we'd have a game on Saturday and it was like all the teams were there. Um, and that is, that was, it was fun. It was enjoyable. But today as a parent of kids, it, it becomes, I mean, even in middle school, middle school and elementary school, it becomes increasingly competitive. It's about winning. It's about shaping skill sets for college, uh, for professional sports. Like, so, so it's increasingly organized so that, so that, you, you know, my daughter plays middle school soccer. She practices two hours every day, five days a week, even on Fridays till six o'clock, four to six o'clock. Five day. days a week. And she's and playing she's, two hours a day. She's in sixth grade. Now they have some phenomenal soccer players on their team, but it comes at a cost. Right. I mean, that's that's a cost of of childhood and of freedom. And, uh, it, you know, it's it this is, I think, the thing that we struggle with as parents is that there are both good and bad that comes out of everything. Right. I mean, so, or I should say in Lindsay's terms, it's neither good or bad. It just is. But <laughs> but in in the sense of play like this, like Ellie is in this organized athletic event that happens for two hours. She spends two hours every Every day with these girls and they've become really close friends and they're learning responsibility and positional play and all this sort of so that part of it's good but also that freedom of just being able to be and like right now my two kids are building something with magnum tiles and playing beyblades together like that just complete like um freedom to play that's lost so so there's a give and take but then what gets next is that the parents start to see it as competitive and it's not just about them being out there and building friendships. It's about winning. It's a proxy and competition it, now. It, mm-hmm. And then somehow, that's right. It, it is almost, it's like gladiators. It's like the, it, our children are our gladiators. They are the ones, Ellie represents the McCord family. And if she loses, that's that's representative of my family and my legacy and my athletic skill set, which we, we all know this is. <laughs> It's not the case, um, but but there are parents who see that, and so that's why you see these fights break out because it's it's represent their child is a manifestation of hmm. their legacy, and and so then things become increasingly competitive, and then the third thing, this consequential, like how you do, is going to predict your future. Like 
If you don't, if you, if you aren't on a travel team and you aren't on, you're never going to play high school ball. Mm. And if you never play high school ball, you're never going to get a scholarship to play college ball. And if you don't play college ball, you'll never get into professional. And that's where, you know, the future is. That's, that's, you know, my kid's not smart enough to be whatever, you know, I hear this all the time. And I hear the high school kids say the same thing. I'm no good at academics. The only thing I've got are my athletics. Well, that's a bunch of bull. That's a complete, complete fabrication that society has taught them and their parents have reinforced. And so that consequentialism, I think, is really what's deteriorated the the joy of organized sports among children. So this makes me wonder, like, how do we how do we emphasize and reincorporate play into our adult lives? And how do we grant permission for our kids to keep playing? I think like a lot of things for adult me, I have to block it on the calendar to make it happen. And I think you have to put yourself in the environment where play can exist. I think pools are a great example of where adults will just make up games and start to play, right? It's that sandbox environment. Mm-hmm. Think about what that place is for you that you could create some structure and get out. But also, I think, especially for adults, for me, the people that I'm with have a huge influence on how much I'm able to play compared to it it makes me wonder if as adults we just really value structure a lot of times or rules or um we can be annoyed by it but like that's how the world operates and so i wonder how we can create a few loose boundaries for ourselves to give us greater permission uh, to play. Um, I mean, research has shown that for kids, like if you, uh, kind of tell them to play in this corner of the playground, if it's a giant playground, they do better than if they have the whole playground to play in. It's like almost too overwhelming sometimes, um, that like, what would it be like to sign up for an art class? And you are kind of, there's some guidance in the play, just enough that it doesn't feel like you're wandering too much. <laughs> How do you create um, an adult playpen for yourself? Yeah, that I wonder if that feels safer to us. If there's some sort of boundary fencing playpen concept, maybe that's like our first segue step for play as adults. Well, we're willing to spend money to have someone else facilitate it for us. I think you look at Top golf, bowling, darts, axe throwing, all of these activities have a play component and they provide something that we can't access ourselves. Right? I don't have top golf at my house. It's a little expensive, mm-hmm. but we're willing to spend money and time to allow that to be facilitated for us. So I think the desire is definitely there. I wonder what I could do to create more micro spaces for play with hmm. people rather than 
feeling like I have to go somewhere to have this big structure to make it happen. That the spirit of play is free and it's cheap and it doesn't cost us anything. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what free cheap doesn't cost us anything. Those are the same things. But <laughs> <laughs> we don't always, we need someone else to impose some guidelines or structure when I don't think that we, I don't think that we necessarily do. I think there's plenty of opportunities for play that exist. I'm trying to think right now, how do I introduce play in areas that I don't normally see it? I'm, I trick my family into playing together when we get together for family gatherings and I put them all on a team. So for example, I, I like to take them to team trivia when the whole extended my family's going to listen to this and be like, we knew that you were doing this, but I try and get them into team trivia at a restaurant where everybody's on the same team and there's an other that is the <laughs> opponent. And so they work collaboratively together based on intergenerational knowledge to accomplish something together. And we win. We win all the time because we go from like 70s and 80s all the way down to like the youths. And so we have a good spectrum. Maybe it's because we have 12 team members and everybody else's teams of three or four. But I think play can be an interesting vehicle to facilitate any of the other topics that we have talked about because it creates space and vulnerability. So for me, as I'm thinking about that challenge, I'm thinking about how I can incorporate it into these other areas and how I can do it in a more natural way than feeling like I have to pay money to go somewhere to play with my friends and family. I think about my children and their addiction to electronics, which doesn't fall far from the tree, unfortunately. I mean, our, our entire world is wrapped up in electronic usage. But I always love when I take it away, like eventually I will take them away and they will, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and threats of bodily harm uh, from children to their parents and threatening to call the police for parental abuse, for removing them from their electronics, those sorts of things. But eventually they will settle down and they will find the coolest things to do out of nothing. And my son will, like yesterday, this happened yesterday, he found a bottle of glue, a thing of string and some leaves outside and made some contraption that was incredibly important to him at the end of it. (laughs) And he did it for hours. He sat for hours at the table, like gluing these leaves and strings together on a piece of paper. And and likewise, Ellie, she 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 also had time away from her electronics and she she started uh, drawing anime pictures and be- these beautiful drawings, you know. So I think there's something to be learned there about how we operate as adults and and that maybe it's sort of sort of at least once a day you, you set aside, if, even if you set aside 15 minutes where there's no technology, there's just just you and, and whatever like kinds of creative outlet that you enjoy and just be a little bit creative and and then sort of build on that to create space in your in your daily life to to have a sense of creativity and and freedom to not be bothered by all the responsibility that you carry but for for this 15 minutes or for this 30 minutes or for this hour whatever you decide whatever you grow into you are solely focused on just being creative in whatever format that means for you um I was thinking about this too, Evan, for our, our work group that the other day, I, 
you guys have been on vacation, uh, Evan and some of the other team were on vacation. And I was thinking while you were gone, it's like, it would be, it would be fun if we had, if we set aside once a month, a day where we did no work together, we just focused on creativity. Like what, what, what opportunities, what fun things could we build together uh, as opposed to working with clients work and deadlines and because that stuff just takes over our work life. Even though we run a creative design firm, it's like you're always coming back to these demands of these reports that are due, iterations that are due, planning and events and things like that. And, and I wonder if we should create some space in our organization for just, for just being creative together and just having fun. Mm. It makes me think lots about how I'm just going to be more intentional in the coming days to bring play into my life. Um, I gathered with clergy recently um, and we had a mini cornhole tournament and then uh, brought out. a Kona. I, a mini cornhole yes. tournament as in a, a small scale cornhole tournament or it was miniature cornhole. Mini. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. We got to be small, small scale. That. There were, uh, they were like this like, big. 20, 20 of us. Okay. Oh, okay. A, so normal sized cornhole, but the Correct. number of people to participate. In. Okay. All right. Because I, I have seen, we had a coffee shop that had mini cornhole and it was like three inches by six inches. And you had to throw these tiny little yeah, no. bags. Um, a, <laughs> yes, a cornhole tournament for a limited number of people. And, um, <laughs> And uh, we also brought in a Kona ice truck and the amount of joy that felt contagious was wild. Um, it was so fun uh, as people were laughing and um, people were super encouraging. There wasn't anything bad about um, like, if you don't fully know how to play, uh, like we'll teach you the rules things like that, that, um, it bonded us and it was like fun and permission granting. And so it makes me wonder how, how do I incorporate that on a larger scale, but how do I put a little more fun into my everyday life? Mm. Um, and how do I read? And also on the other thing that I'm taking away from this podcast today is how do I read the scriptures and look for playful interactions? more often that how do I uh, see where the creativity is and see how uh, Jesus is encouraging us to engage with people differently. I think that's uh, I think that's a great, I think it's a great way to intersect the play back into our spirituality. And I think you talking about preachers, pastors playing together. I think that's where it, it should start for all those who are involved in leadership over over pastors or over churches to to start incorporating some play in the life of your spirituality because that that can create the space that people need to have a real sense of relationship uh, with their whole selves rather than just the segmented uh, kind of part of themselves that goes to church but they're also fun people who want to have fun together and who need relationships and need that freedom to be able to talk to each other that play creates and looking for that lightheartedness through scriptures 
uh, as a way to to see that 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 our creator is a creator of, of fun things and all things, and that that includes fun things, uh, and that God's with us in all things, including fun things. And so, um, our maybe that's maybe that's one of our responsibilities as faith leaders is to create space for people to have uh, intentional fun uh, that allows them to be creative. I love it. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, Michael and Lindsay, for all your thoughts and wisdom. Thanks, Justin Patton, for producing this episode. We hope that you will be inspired to play and that you will feel refreshed and recreated yourself uh, as you get to experience life with joy and not always be squeezed of all your productivity. You don't have to monetize your hobbies. Not today. You can just play and have a good time. We'll see you next episode. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.